one of the best ways to learn about someone's character is not primarily based on what they say, but rather how they act, right? Whether good or bad. How they act is one of the greatest determining factors of someone's character. And when I say that, what comes to my mind is Jerry Croak. <laughs> um, he used to come to church here, but he moved away to Virginia. And uh, one thing I know about Jerry is he's always giving. He was always kind. He just gave and gave and gave. And uh, just about a year ago, he wrote a letter, and he had been gone for a little bit of time already, and uh, each, to each one of my children, and it was over a page each. And uh, it just tells you something about Jerry, doesn't it? It tells you that Jerry's got a heart, that he cares for people. And in a similar way, one of the best ways to know God's character is to see how he relates to Israel. So the question we need to ask is, what can we learn about the character of God based on how he relates to Israel? And I want us to think about this. God displays his goodness in how he relates to Israel. We see that God is very, 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 very good. <laughs> we see his goodness in the creation of a people for himself. He took these people out of nowhere and literally created a people out of them. He formed his people out of a pagan people, <laughs> a God-worshipping people out of a pagan people. Amazing. We see his goodness in his provision, his protection, and his saving of his people. He delivered them from obstacle after obstacle. He brought them into the promised land and lavished His goodness on them and His care for them. He blessed them beyond imagination. What a benevolent and good God we see in the way He relates to His people. But in a similar way, we can learn about Israel based on how they responded to God, can't we? We can learn something about Israel's character based on how they responded to God's goodness. And really, when we're looking at Israel, I want us to understand we're really looking at ourselves. Just as God's character doesn't change, so is Israel, in a sense, on stage. And they are representing us. How they act is revealing of our own hearts. And so what do we learn about Israel from their response to God is that they are not good. Right? They're consistently rebellious against God. And we saw this last week, didn't we? That the leadership who was supposed to be serving God by caring for the people, what did they care about? They really just cared about themselves, didn't they? They were worthless leaders. Completely worthless. Uh, they couldn't bark. They were like, like uh, uh, someone who's supposed to warn you, but they couldn't bark. They couldn't even see. They couldn't identify problems. They couldn't identify evil. They couldn't warn the people. And I said, it's kind of like many of those preachers today that are on TV who have no ability to warn. They're useless. They're useless. They really just cared about themselves. We also saw last week that the people who were supposed to be serving God were rather serving other gods. Now, we, this doesn't mean they weren't religious, right? They were very religious. Everyone, in a sense, even if they claim they're not, everyone is religious, right? But they just were not worshiping God the way he prescribed 
for him to be worshipped. They mixed a little bit of God into the other things of this world. That is paganism. That is complete paganism. And so they looked just like the world around them. They incorporated the things of this world into their worship. They even practiced every sort of sexual deviancy and wickedness. And they engaged in child sacrifices. I mean, they looked like the world with a little bit of perhaps uh, a spirituality mixed in there. <laughs> right? We, leave, we learned even more about God's character by his response to Israel's rebellion. We learned that God was not only good in his benevolence and his care for them, but he was also just and righteous through his judgments that he brought on his people. And by the way, this is also his goodness, isn't it? His justice and his righteousness is an aspect of his goodness as well. Remember, he called for the beasts to devour the leadership in chapter 56, verse 9. And that's a sign of judgment. He's calling the nations to devour his people. And then he said that their righteousness would do the people no good. It wouldn't profit them. Because it was not God's righteousness, it was their righteousness. And our righteousness is as filthy rags. And then he said they would not be saved in the day of judgment because their idols could do them no good. Basically, they will cry out to their idols, but their idols won't listen. They can't do anything for them. They would be found to be worthless in the day of judgment. But then we learned something else even more surprising about the greatness of God's goodness. It is as if the goodness of God explodes on the scene in brilliance before our eyes. To these very same people, these very same rebellious and wicked, wicked people who've turned away from God and followed idols after God's goodness had been poured upon them, God graciously offers salvation for all who will take refuge in Him. How amazing was that at the end of the passage last week? Let me read this short half a verse. Chapter 57, verse 14. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. In the midst of our ruin, in the midst of our judgment, God offers refuge. And we see the amazing goodness of God that is beyond our comprehension. Total forgiveness, total pardon He offers us to all who will come to Him. Now this tells us more about God than about us, doesn't it? It tells us something about the character of God. That God's goodness is greater than we could ever comprehend or imagine. This is where we ended up last week, and this is really where we'll start off this week. And I want us to understand there are some verses that are kind of like pivot verses. They kind of have to do with the passage before, and they lead us into the passage that's ahead of us. And that's exactly what this verse is doing here. It has to do with what we looked at last week, and now it's leading us into this week. And today we will expound on the goodness of God by looking at this offer of hope that He holds out in front of us. And we talked about during Sunday school a little bit about the darkness of this world. We talked about how the world is getting darker and darker. We see it all around us. 
And I do not think there is any greater need for us than to be reminded and go deeply into the goodness of God. I don't think there's any greater need than there is now. We need to be reminded of the goodness of God. Only then will we hold tightly to Him. And only then as a church can we survive the tumultuous world that we are in and the challenges that we are facing. So I want you to be amazed, be thankful at the goodness of God and run to Him today. Hold fast to Him. So God foretells a future day when there will be a great turning from idolatry to refuge in Himself. Therefore, He says this, get the road ready. He says this in verse 14. He gives us a great view of the hope that is ahead of us, of, of those whom He is writing to when He says, get ready the road. There's going to be a great turning to the Lord. Let me read that verse, verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. So what is God communicating to His people here? What He's saying is that there is going to be this great turning towards God of this vast group of people. And not just a few people, but many people. And so what do you do when there's all these people going down a road? You have to build up the road. You have to repair the road. You have to make it ready for these people. Get rid of the obstacles. Because there's going to be this great traveling, this great group of people traveling on this road. So get rid of the hindrances. Prepare the way. Now we all know where this road is leading to, don't we? There's only one road that even matters. <laughs> we don't need to be told what the road is. We know that this road is a road leading to God. It's a road that's going away from idolatry and a road that is leading to God. This is not a road leading to Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem. This is a road leading to Mount Zion, <laughs> where God dwells. Leading into the very presence of God. So the question is, what might be these stumbling blocks that need to be removed and get taken out of the way, right? That we need to get to God. <laughs> That's the great issue of our lives, is we need God more than anything. And the greatest problem is we don't realize it, right? So what are these things that are standing in the way? We're not told what they are, are, are we? <laughs> doesn't say anything about what they are, but we can imagine what, what they might be. They could be that great dividing wall between the Greek and the Jew, right? It could be those things that hinder us from running well. It could be those things like unbelief and sin and rebellion and idolatry. And there's only one person who can answer this call to ultimately remove the obstacles. And we know that that is the Messiah. He clears the path. He gets it ready. He raises the road. He makes it clear for all of us. And the one requirement is that you come His way. The barriers are really your own heart that needs to be removed so you can travel this road to God. The way has been opened. And the way is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way that we can come to God in His finished work on the cross. We might wonder, now even if there is a way, who among us could ever dwell with God? And verse 15 offers us great hope by telling us who can dwell with God. 
Who is this person? Verse 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him was of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. So if we are to ever understand who can dwell with God, we need to first understand who God is. This is the most fundamental question to all of life is who is God? We will never understand even the basics of anything in, in life if we don't understand first who God is. And if we stop erecting our own ideas of who God is and start looking at who he says he is, right? And the good news is God himself tells us who he is. And really, how else would we know who God is unless he tells us who he is? And so God says here he is the transcendent one in every way over creation. He is completely transcendent over creation. And transcendent means he is infinitely higher and above and even outside of creation. He stands outside of his creation. He's not just higher than. He's not just uh, exalted above. He is so high and so exalted, infinitely higher, that he is outside of his creation. To be high and lifted up means he transcends beyond space. He is beyond space. To inhabit eternity means he transcends beyond time. He lives forever. To be holy means he is transcendent in character. Means he is separate in character. Beyond space, beyond time, and separate in character. That's who God says he is. He is supreme above all and stands outside of creation. And this should help explain why there is so much error and so much confusion whenever we try to mingle God in any way with creation. You know, that's what, what most religions do is they try to somehow um, mistake God for being part of creation. And that's a huge problem. There's not less than an infinite gap that separates God from creation. Think about that. There's an infinite gap that separates God from all of his creation. He is that much greater. And this is often the way God loves to describe himself throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 6 verse 1, if you remember, for instance, this is basically the same way God described himself to Isaiah. When he saw him high and lifted up and exalted. Right? When he saw God, this is what he saw. High and exalted. High and lifted up. In Isaiah 52 verse 13, amazingly, the servant is described in very similar language. A great reminder that the servant is God himself. So if you are to understand God, it is foundational that you understand that he transcends us, that he's greater than us, that he's outside of us. He is that big. So the question is, if this is who God is, then where would you imagine that God would dwell? And it makes sense that he would dwell in the high and holy place, right? It makes sense that he would dwell outside of his creation. That's what it means when it says the high and holy place there. It means he is outside of his creation, that he's beyond us, that he transcends his creation. But what if we moved inside of creation? If he were to actually dwell in creation, who would he dwell with? Where would God dwell? What do you think would be the answer to that question? And most of us would probably say, well, with the great 
and the powerful and the mighty and the famous to the kings of this world who are the great ones. Greatness should dwell with greatness. That's often what our minds think, don't they? But where does it say that God dwells here? Inside his creation. It says, and also with him was of a contrite and lowly spirit. That should be surprising. How strange are these words to our ears, to our normal way of thinking at least. This is not the way we think. This is not the way we would have imagined it. So what does it mean to be contrite and lowly in spirit? And I want to ask this question. Think about it for a second. Contrite means to be crushed, to be ground into nothing, to pieces, or leveled on the ground. To be lowly refers to those who are humbled in the dust. You might think of it this way. Imagine if you were steamrolled on the ground like a pancake. You know, like those big steamrollers? Those big, real heavy steamrollers that that go around and they just like would level you to the level of the ground, make you into a pancake. Well, it's kind of what it's saying here. You'd be plowed to the ground, leveled into the dust. And this crushing, humbling can only be understood in relationship to God. And so what this isn't saying is it's not saying someone is not contrite and lowly in spirit who thinks they are nothing. That's not what it's saying here who are crushed by the hardness of life, who are simply depressed. It's not the Eeyore syndrome, right? Woe is me, (laughs) I am nothing. That's not what it's saying here. Those aren't necessarily the people whom God dwells among. It is someone who recognizes their worthlessness and and is crushed in relationship to who God is. In other words, this looks like repentance and sorrow before God. It is repentance and sorrow in their rebellion against God. The person feels a brokenness, yes, in their sin. So yes, there is a sense that the whole world is broken and falling apart. And we are broken and we are falling apart. But it's in relationship to God. And it realizes that we are nothing before God. It is a brokenness before God. This is Isaiah's response. After seeing God high and lifted up, what did he say? He said, woe is me, for I am an unclean man, and I have seen God. That's what it means to be crushed. It means to see God rightfully, with the right perspective. And this idea is so opposite of the pop pop Christianity culture that we live in, isn't it? It's so contrary to the self-esteem generation we live in today. I'll I'll never forget this song, and it's amazing, I always forget songs, but I tend to remember the bad ones, which doesn't make any sense. But this one line in it just stood out, and everything else might have been okay, but this one line stood out. It says, God believes in you. We're thinking, like, that's not what the Bible says. (laughs) It never says that. (laughs) It says the opposite of that. (laughs) That is almost Contrary to the gospel itself. Isn't that so strange? But that is so in line with our culture today. The Bible constantly says you are to believe in God. There is nothing worth believing in you. God does not 
believe in you. That's a bad song. And these little things that might appear like insignificant, like, come on, don't pick on my song, is a significant thing. That's a big deal. That's a big problem when it comes to who God is. So why does God dwell with the crushed in spirit? Because only the crushed in spirit take the right position before God. It is only from the bottom that we can look up and see God, right? It is only from the perspective of being low and downcast that we can look up and see the great and exaltedness of our God. If we are looking down, we will never see God. That is the wrong perspective. We will never see Him. God does not dwell with the proud and the arrogant who are not, are not a base on their knees before God. That's why if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is absolutely essential. It is an absolutely essential aspect of faith to bow to God as Lord. You cannot be saved without bowing to God as Lord. It is impossible. So what is God determined to do for those who are crushed and humbled by sin? He says to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see, this is what it means to dwell in the favorable presence of God. God is a life giver. God gives life. And when you're in his presence, you receive life. That's what he gives. God gives life today and for eternity. He revives the crushed and the lowly. We become human, you might say. We become what God intended for us to be. For the first time, we begin to actually live where before we were dead and did not know what life really was. But that's what God does. He gives life, doesn't he? So we might wonder how anyone could ever dwell with God because of, of his righteous wrath that is directed towards sinners. And here we find hope in the fact that God promises not to be angry with his people forever in verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. You know, there is this particularly big problem standing in the way of God's people from ever finding refuge in God. And what is that? What is that big problem that everyone has? And I've said this over and over again, but we think we have problems. But there is no problem outside of this one problem. The problem is the wrath of God. And the Bible says unequivocally that everyone has the wrath of God hanging over their heads, right? This is the one problem in the world today. And so it says here that he therefore contends with us or fights against us because of our sin. And the only hope for anyone that we might have is for God to remove his anger from us. Your only hope to find refuge in God is that he removes his anger from you. And we need to understand the desperate need we have today of God's anger being removed from us if we're to ever dwell in the presence of God. And so just think about this for a second. This means we need to be saved from God to God. The real need is that we are saved from the wrath of God into the favor of God. That's what we need today. That's what salvation is, by the way. So the greatest news in all the world is that he says he will not always be angry with his people forever. And is this good news or what? If there was ever good news, this is good news. God says with those who are his, 
with his people, he will not always be angry with them. And even though we're not told how, we know how this is a fact. We know how God removes his anger from his people. We know that God became a sin offering for us. We know the servant became an offering for our sin. We needed someone to take our sin for us because our sin had to be paid for. Justice has been satisfied for God's people through the cross that Jesus bore. Christ's death is why God acquits, which means to clear from charges, otherwise guilty people. And so praise God for His cross. Praise God for the work He does. Praise God that He bore our sin so that we could bear His righteousness. And the reason He will not always be angry is because He knows the limitations and weaknesses of the spirit of man. Otherwise, we would be crushed. We would be destroyed. There would be no hope at all. So God is fully aware of our condition. As someone said, He's not naive. God is not naive. He knows who we are. And this is what gives us hope that God will move to intervene. And we need drastic intervention, as verse 17 tells us. Listen to verse 17. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. You see, God is not like that parent who thinks their children can do nothing wrong. You know those parents who have this rose-colored lens when it comes to their kids? Uh, they might think their kids did something wrong, but they really didn't mean it, right? It was, it was they have a good heart and they didn't mean to do the wrong. Right? They always give them the benefit of the doubt. They always meant well, and they seldom disciplined them. And by the way, such children will end up being spoiled brats someday. It's just the way it is. But God describes what made him angry with his people here. And God said what made him angry, and this is kind of surprising, isn't it? Was the iniquity of unjust gain. What in the world does that mean? Well, really, to have iniquity is to deviate from God's will and God's law. It's contradiction to God's way and God's law that He has prescribed for us. But the deviation here, the, the contradiction to His law, is greed or covetousness. Another way of describing greed is lust or desire for more at any cost. It's to pursue our lust and our desires at any cost, foremost and above all things. It's to have this unsatisfiable pursuit of self-interest. Such unbridled, selfish desire puts me at the center of the world rather than God. It makes me the center of everything and puts life with me as the object and the goal of everything. It pursues to be comfortable, secure, and saved without God and at all costs. And this is another way of saying idolatry, isn't it? This is simply what idolatry is. It tries to circumvent God to get at His goodness. It tries to circumvent God to get at the good things of God. That's what idolatry is. It manipulates God to get His blessings to come our way. And God will always get the last laugh to everyone who tries to pursue God's blessings that way. And is this not only a summary of Israel's sin, but also a root of all sin? <laughs> That's really what it is. 
Paul compared covetousness with idolatry in Colossians 3 verse 5. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And really you could put in place of money anything we value, anything we pursue. So what did God do because of their sin and iniquity? Well, it says here he smacked them. God sent the Babylonians on him. And then remember what happened. He refused to do anything to help them. He hid himself. And, and this is really what any loving father would do for a wayward child. They would discipline them. You know, there is a proper time in your child's life when proper discipline requires spanking. <laughs> right? The Bible says that. Sometimes it is loving to do that. That's the only way they will learn. And so God says he disciplines his children. Now, our society will say otherwise. But we need to be faithful to God's word. There is a loving time for that. Spare the rod, the Bible says. Spoil the child. But this just brought out the greatness of the problem, didn't it? Do you notice what happened when God disciplined his people? The greatness of the problem was exposed to be really what it really is. To be the size and the greatness of what it really is. How did they respond? After the discipline, what did he do? He dusted himself off and just continued to go down the road he was going on. Right? Imagine this. You discipline your child. He gets up and then continues to do what he was doing before you disciplined him. Right? And this is exactly what's going on here. God's people were not learning through the discipline. It was doing no good on them at all. So my question for you is, what is the hope for such a person? And the answer is, there is no hope for such a person. Such a child, if they remain in that condition, is going in a hopeless direction. All we can do is pray that God would change their heart. Because there is no way, if discipline doesn't work, there is nothing else you can do. If a child does not respond to discipline, ultimately there's no hope for him or her. And that's what we see in Israel. And what does this mean for us? God is displaying in Israel the depravity of our own hearts. We are totally depraved. We are unencourageable. There is nothing good in us. We are no different than Israel. They are representative of us. You and I. And this is a good reminder that even though our punishment might not seem to have the results that we think it should have, and though we might think we need to abandon our punishing of our children when the time is right and out of love, but we must not ever give in to pragmatism. We must never think that because it's not working, it means that our way of doing things is necessarily wrong, right? Sometimes we think that, well, my child isn't turning because I'm disciplining and therefore I must do something else. I must give him everything. This must be wrong what I'm doing. And that's not necessarily true. Notice that God was doing the right thing by disciplining his people even though they were not listening to it. It is still the right thing to do. I remember when my dad, when I was really young, my dad disciplined me. He, he spanked me. And I remember saying, I'm never doing this to my kids. But I have learned and grown in maturity <laughs> as I've gotten older. <laughs> and I love my kids, right? So if this is our condition, then how can anyone ever dwell with God? The only hope for such sinful people is a miraculous work of God in our hearts. God has to do something if we are ever to be healed and find refuge in Him. 
This is exactly what God says he's going to do in verses 18 through 19. I wish I could read it, but we must move on. <laughs> if God were to wait for us to respond properly to his discipline, he would have waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. We never would have responded to it because our hearts are wicked. We are depraved. And it only shows us how wicked we are. But God is not naive. He knows exactly our ways. And that is good news for us, right? Because it says here that God, and this is the good news, that God is going to do something to heal him himself. This means God is going to have to intervene. Because he knows our ways, he has to intervene. And he has to bring healing. And there's no sweeter words than this, is there? He brings healing. He brings comfort. He brings fruit. And he brings a song of peace. What would this healing look like? Now, remember, God dwells with the contrite and lowly in spirit. If we are to be healed, then we must be contrite and lowly in spirit. And the problem is that we are prideful and arrogant and selfish, right? And so, if God is to heal us, he may, must give us a new heart. He must make us into people who are contrite and lowly in spirit. And that's exactly what God does here. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. He must crush our pride. A major heart transplant. This is the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31, and 33. And this, 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 what God does here is described as creating fruit of the lips. And what would that fruit of the lips be? Well, it would be anything that should come out of us that is proper in worship to God. And that fruit of the lips includes repentance. It includes um, um, thankfulness. It includes rejoicing. It includes everything that we owe to God. That's what God creates within us. One man said this, There is nothing in the whole of salvation that is not God's sole creative work, not even the words of sorrow by which the penitent comes home. This is what God does for his people. And then God also heals in such a way that he brings peace. Notice the double peace, peace, meaning abundant a peace, with God and peace in our lives, a, a feeling and a reality of peace that God brings into our lives that goes beyond our circumstances. And what is most encouraging is that it's for those who are near and those who are far away. Not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Amen. And then we lead, read these words. But for all who do not find refuge in God but continue in their wicked ways, there is no possible hope for finding peace. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The wicked are those who do not turn to God for refuge. The wicked are those who do not bow their knees to God, who are not crushed by their reality of their wickedness and their rebellion against God. Those are the wicked. That is the path of idolatry that stands up in arrogance and selfishness before God. There is a sense in which the wicked might have everything in the world. They might have all the treasures in the world, but they are missing something that is absolutely vital. What is that? They might have kingdoms in this world. They might have the whole world, but they do not have peace. They do not have peace. They do not have peace when they go to bed at night. They do not have peace when they wake up. It is impossible to have peace without being in a right relationship with God. And the wicked, they might have everything in the world. They might be millionaires, but they will not ever have peace. And then when they die and they leave this world, not only will they have nothing in this world, 
but they'll also lack peace. Not only will they have the fire of God's judgment, but they'll also, outwardly, but they'll also lack peace inwardly. And that's what the final judgment really is. And that for eternity. How tragic of a thought is that? The lack of peace the wicked have is described with this vivid language, the, the, the sea that never stops turning and never stops turning over. It just continually is in an uproar. It's never at peace. It's always turning over. Murky. If you do not run to God for refuge, you will never find peace. And we need to know that. We need to understand that there is no peace outside of God. Run to God today. Only in Him can you find peace. And if you have nothing in this world and you have peace with God, you have everything you need. So none of us have any goodness to commend ourselves to God with. None of us are super Christians. I am not a professional Christian. I want you to know that. None of us are. We lack all goodness in ourselves. We have nothing to bring that is commendable to God for our salvation. We are all in the same boat. All goodness comes from God. And He is overflowing with goodness to all who will leave all and take refuge in Him. All that is good comes from God, according to James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Psalm 139 verse 19 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Therefore, come to God. Come to God's goodness. According to Matthew 11 verse 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Taste of God's goodness, according to Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Meditate and speak of His goodness, according to Psalm 145, 5-7. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of Your majesty and on Your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of Your awesome acts, and I will declare Your greatness. They shall utter the memory of Your great goodness and shall sing of Your righteousness." Give thanks to God for His goodness. Oh, oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good for His mercy endures forever. And then finally, sing of His goodness everywhere you go. Ezra 3 verse 11. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for He is good for His mercy endures forever towards Israel. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, You are so good, Lord. Our minds cannot even begin to comprehend the goodness of God this morning, Lord. God, we were crushed. We are broken. We are helpless. Lord, we were never meant to be on our own. We were never meant to save ourselves. We have nothing good to commend ourselves before You. Lord, all of our goodness is in You. And we thank You, Lord, that You have brought to us the words of comfort, the words of peace, the words of salvation. And You have accomplished that salvation for us through Jesus Christ. And I pray that everyone in here would run to You for refuge. I pray that none of us would, would, would sleep tonight 
without knowing that we are safe in the refuge of Jesus Christ. And God, I thank You that there is no fear in You, Jesus. That there is nothing to fear when we are inside of You and have taken refuge in You. God, thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for Your love for us. I pray that we would proclaim Your goodness this week. I pray that we tell others of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that there is refuge in You. And Lord, I pray that, we would, that You would fill our hearts with the view of Your goodness. May we see You and may we worship You and may we praise You this week. In Jesus' name, amen.